0: If you're tired of these promos, supporters get the podcast early and ad-free. Just go to donate.bogosity.tv for the links to sign up. Welcome to the Bogosity Podcast for the week of April 9, 2023. The podcast that indicted a ham sandwich for not having cheese. This is your host, Shane Killian. Let's excaudate the news of the bogus. Did you ever think anyone will be sentenced for memes? Memes that are completely, obviously free speech? Douglas Mackey, known online as Ricky Vaughn, was convicted of, get this, conspiracy against rights. Sounds like the Brooklyn Court should be convicted of that instead. He made a satirical meme in the style of a Hillary Clinton campaign ad, it said that viewers could skip the line by sending their vote by text, which is, of course, impossible. 2016 really was the year of the meme, as people all over the place were making satirical memes about the election, including ones saying to vote for Trump by text. Christina Wong even made a satirical video posing as a Trump supporter, urging people to vote for him by text. None of them were arrested and tried, though. U.S. Attorney Brian Pease said, quote, Mackey has been found guilty by a jury of his peers of attempting to deprive individuals from exercising their sacred right to vote for the candidate of their choice in the 2016 presidential election. Today's verdict proves that the defendant's fraudulent actions crossed a line into criminality and flatly rejects his cynical attempt To use the constitutional right of free speech as a shield for his scheme to subvert the ballot box and suppress the vote. By making a joke! Their so-called evidence included the fact that around 4,900 unique numbers texted the number, which is less than a tenth of the number of followers he had. They had no evidence whatsoever that these people were fooled by the ad and didn't vote in person. But that's what they claimed because there's no other reason for people to text that number, right? When I was in junior high, Tommy Two Tone released a single called 8675309. The day it was released, everyone in every area code who had that number was inundated with prank calls. A Chicago woman received 22,000 calls in four days, an unknown number went to a Brown University dorm room. In my area, it was actually the number of a junior high school principal near me, not mine. By all accounts, the crank calls to the number only stopped when the phone system began requiring the area could be dialed before every number, although a number of companies have requested the number on purpose because of its memorability. Most people with the number had a sense of humor about it, which is sorely lacking with Democrats. Whether it's just a failure to accept the reality of their 2016 loss and looking for anyone and everyone to blame, or just a case of them being incredibly sore losers, this is a terrible precedent. It means that the government can arrest people over any speech it claims is election-related misinformation. The prosecutor bleated, quote, Today's verdict proves that the defendant's fraudulent actions crossed a line into criminality. But the only criminal exception to the First Amendment, according to the Supreme Court, is a credible threat of imminent lawless action. This wasn't even close. And yet, District Court Judge Nicholas G. Garofas ruled, quote, False speech raises unique First Amendment concerns, and depending on the context of the false speech, may fall into categories historically exempted from First Amendment protection or warrant intermediate, not strict, scrutiny. Outright Lie. The Supreme Court has, on numerous occasions, verified that false speech is protected from criminal prosecution. The imminent lawless action exception applies regardless of whether the speech is true or false. Hell, the Supreme Court has even said that lying in election campaigns is protected speech. And it certainly never happened when it's clear satire. He faces 10 years in prison. This is reprehensible. This case should have never even been let in the door. It's just a case of a corrupt prosecutor and a corrupt judge in a corrupt district in New York. Oh, wait... This is all sounding familiar. If you're looking for a way to support this channel, but you don't have any spare cash and you can't stand ads, you can do so by generating your own cryptocurrency. Use the links at the bottom of the description to follow the link to odyssey.com to listen to the podcast and see all of my YouTube videos as well. Just watching videos will produce cryptocurrency for the creator and yourself. And since Odyssey is always monetized and never censored, you'll have no problem seeing all the videos from your favorite creators. You can also use the library credits you created Odyssey to tip creators and even purchase paid content. Earn library credits through various rewards, including daily view rewards and the number of shares and invites. And you can interact with creators in all sorts of ways, including like and dislike, Comment, boost a post by supporting it, repost it, and share to other sites, all while earning crypto for the creator. Easily monetize yourself and your favorite creators using cryptocurrency, without advertising. Use the link below to visit this channel on odyssey.com and see many of your other favorites there as well. And another update in the Maricopa County Signature Verification case. Turns out they were illegally and inconsistent with their previous statements using third-party signature verification software. And that software was set for only a 10% match to be high confidence. In a race that separated the top candidates by just 17,000 votes, overwhelmingly Democratic candidate Katie Hobbs was elected with mail-in votes and Republican Carrie Lake with votes on Election Day. Those mail-in ballots had to be signature verified, and with such a low confidence level for a match, many signatures that don't even remotely resemble each other were considered a match. Emails between Maricopa County officials and Runbeck Election Services, who makes the Veris Pro application for signature matching, show that, on a scale of 0 to 100, 0 meaning certainly not a match, and 100 meaning certainly a match, only scores lower than 10 were marked as not accepted. According to Title 10, Section 550 of the Arizona Revised Statute's quote, The county recorder or other officer in charge of elections shall compare the signatures thereon with the signature of the elector on the elector's registration record. And if they don't match, they have to contact the voter and see if they can confirm the inconsistent signature. They would have had to do that with 1.3 million early ballots. Despite the fact that the Arizona Supreme Court has said that her case about the signatures can proceed through the lower court, Lake tweeted, quote, Maricopa County election officials refuse to allow Carrie Lake's legal team to inspect ballot signatures. What are they hiding? Ballot signature affidavits are supposed to be public record. In a separate tweet, she said, quote, Maricopa County has confirmed what we all knew to be true ballot signatures do not match election officials brazenly hiding evidence from us. This is the smoking gun. Unfortunately for them, I'm not giving up, even if that means legally forcing them to hand over evidence. We'll have to see what the court makes them turn over in the way of discovery, although given the previous behavior of the trial court, I'm not confident they'll give Lake a fair shot. Still, these are basic rules of evidence, and if they deny her this, it may mean another trip to the state Supreme Court, or even the U.S. Supreme Court. We'll be watching. It seems like everything the government does surrounding cryptocurrency ranges from complete ignorance to outright fascism. Which combination of the two this is, I leave as an exercise for the listener. U.S. District Judge Larry Burns has held that any token holder of a blockchain is a partner of the organization and can be held responsible for their losses. The case concerns BZX DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization incorporated in Delaware. It's a decentralized finance protocol that distributes decision-making power across the network. In 2021, a hack of the network resulted in $55 million worth of tokens being stolen, apparently as a result of one of the developers falling prey to a phishing attack. But instead of saying the hacker is responsible, and instead of saying the developer is responsible due to negligence, Burns is saying that anyone who held a token at the time is responsible. He didn't even say it was a design flaw, which one developer being hacked means you can steal tokens? Yeah, major design flaw. But what sense does it make to hold token holders responsible, especially since the plaintiffs were token holders at the time? I mean, suing people whose funds were also put at risk? What sense does that make? Despite the fact that there's absolutely nothing in the principles of partnership law that would allow for such an interpretation, Burns ruled that the token holders could vote to distribute the Dow's assets, even though that's not even close to what happened, and therefore it was just like an ordinary business that could authorize dividend payments. A bit of the real truth slipped out when Burns agreed with the Commodity Futures Trading Commission that the point of the Dow is to evade federal regulators. They really don't like things they can't control. It's also funny that only a few defendants were named, when there are undoubtedly many more token holders, most of whom probably aren't even in the United States. The DAO, now called Uki, has since barred users based in the US, so it's not even clear what's going to happen next, especially since thousands of DAOs have been formed in the last several years, most of which have anonymous token holders. In fact, they only seem to be able to come after this one because the DAO itself is as badly designed as the protocol. What would they do when faced with a truly memberless organization? Too many questions, but sadly, that can only make the chilling effect worse. Which is probably the real idea, make people afraid to take a step without actually having the responsibility or accountability to actually ban it. Yet another tool of actual fascism. Do you have children? Or nieces or nephews? Are you homeschooling? Or just want to counter some of the socialist indoctrination most children get in school? And now it's time to anesthetize this week's biggest bogon emitter. And this week it goes to Attorney General Merrick Garland for, well, basically existing, but mostly his testimony at a House subcommittee. As we've covered, the defendants arrested on charges relating to their actions at the Capitol Building on January 6, 2021 have been held in pretrial detention, subject to deplorable conditions for longer than most of them would have had to serve if they'd been found guilty and sentenced. And the House just wants to know why. Andrew Clyde asked about the rights of INNOCENT Jan 6 defendants, because remember, everyone IS innocent until proven guilty and why they've been denied. Clyde had toured the D.C. Department of Corrections and met with some of the defendants. Clyde told Garland that the Speedy Trial Act of 1974 codifies timelines surrounding the Sixth Amendment requirement by saying a trial, quote, must commence within 70 days from the date the information or indictment was filed or from the date the defendant appears before an officer of the court in which the charge is pending, whichever is later. And yet... Most of them have been waiting more than two years. Garland's answer? Quote, Look, I don't know the specifics of individual cases. Are you kidding me? This is a common thing happening with pretty much all the defendants, and that's your answer? Garland made the excuse that there were exceptions, but those exceptions are absolutely 100% up to the defendants. So then we have this exchange. Clyde. I would like you to look into that because, to me, I don't think waiting two years for your trial complies with the Sixth Amendment of the Constitution. Garland. This is an argument to be made before the judge. The judge has the authority to dismiss a case for a violation of the Speedy Trial Act. Clyde. You're absolutely correct. A judge does have that authority. You know, like you said in your opening statement— you work to uphold the civil rights of all Americans. I think in this case, their civil rights are being violated, and I would appreciate you looking into that. Garland didn't respond. On at least one occasion, the Feds actually acknowledged that they were responsible. Lucas Denny was arrested on December 13, 2021. The government indicted him on March 7 of 22, two days after his lawyer's petition for his release they'd held him for almost four months without even indicting him. That's 84 days, two weeks longer than the total time before trial. So basically, he and his attorney were bullied into him pleading guilty just so he could get out sometime. But the judge sentenced him to 52 months in prison, three years of unsupervised release, and restitution to be determined later. Not only have they been held much longer than the maximum time period, but they've also been subjected to the psychological torture known as solitary confinement, unsanitary conditions, and even regular beatings by prison guards. Most have also been denied access to their attorneys or materials relevant to their legal defense, as well as access to the means of practicing their religions. Some have even been denied haircuts! In one case, they didn't offer proper alternatives to a detainee with severe and documented food allergies, forcing him to choose between not eating and severe pain from allergic reactions. There is no reason for the trials to take this long. There's also no reason for them not to be tried in federal court in their home districts, other than they can't rely on their corruption the way they can on the D.C. court. It is absolutely the responsibility of every single person involved in the criminal justice system to ensure the rights of each and every defendant and suspect. Judge, cop, prosecutor, they are all equally charged with upholding the Constitution and especially someone in the leadership position that Garland holds. He has a lot to answer for. Unfortunately, that's the one thing he's refusing to do. So all of that makes Merrick Garland this week's Biggest Bogani Emitter. I want to tell you about the eyeglasses I've been wearing for years. As people can see on my videos, I have a very strong prescription, which makes glasses more expensive, especially when I need computer glasses, reading glasses, prescription sunglasses, and most expensively, progressive lenses for general everyday wear. Go to Firmoo, that's F-I-R-M-O-O dot Bogosity dot TV anytime you need quality glasses at a low price. Once again, that's Firmoo dot Bogosity dot TV. And now let's ramify this week's Idiot, Idiot Extraordinary! And for the second week in a row, it's D.A. Alvin Bragg, for whom things didn't get any better when more details of Trump's indictment came out. And just so you know, this Politico article is written by Kyle Cheney, Erica Orden, and Josh Gerstein, none of whom are in any way Trump fans. Check them out on Twitter and you'll see. Even Trump's critics are taking a dim view of Bragg's case, including left-leaning lawyers, liberal pundits, and Republican Trump detractors. It seems that they were so eager to see the horrible crimes Trump committed and were completely deflated to see the complete nothing-burger it turned out to be. They wrote, Some wondered why Bragg revived a case he had appeared to leave for dead just months ago. Others questioned the specifics. Like how Bragg was able to elevate the falsification of business records charges against Trump into felonies, a move that requires evidence that Trump attempted to conceal a second crime. Still others focused on the delay in bringing charges, six years after the core underlying conduct. Bragg left those questions unanswered, even after being asked directly by the press. The crimes depend on other crimes being committed or covered up. The press asked him what those other crimes are. He answered, quote, The indictment doesn't specify, because the law does not so require. Richard Haston, campaign finance law expert at UCLA, said, quote, It is said that if you go after the king, you should not miss. In this vein, it is very easy to see this case tossed off for legal insufficiency or tied up in the courts well past the 2024 election before it might ever go to trial. It will be a circus that will embolden Trump, especially if he walks. Even Vox's Ian Milheiser called the indictment dubious, especially since one of those crimes apparently involves campaign finance, which would be a federal crime. Can a state crime even be hinged on a federal crime? That, at best, is an untested legal idea, and the time not to test that is the first ever indictment of a former president. It would be one thing if Trump had been convicted of violating election law. At least Bragg might have an argument that the proper finders of fact, in this case the hypothetical federal jury that would have convicted him, found he committed a crime, these financial transfers would apply to that, and Bragg could argue, even if it's completely untested, that the federal crime is what the state crime can be built on. But when he wasn't even indicted? When the people in charge of investigating that... The FEC in this case said there's no violation and the law enforcement arm of the proper jurisdiction, in this case the DOJ, said they weren't going to indict. What does that do? It puts this jury, this state jury, in the position of being the finder of fact on a federal crime. Because they would have to determine that Trump committed a crime in another jurisdiction when that jurisdiction didn't. South Carolina cannot put you on trial for violating the law in North Carolina, and for the same reason, no state can put you on trial for violating federal law. But that's basically what's happening here. So all of that makes Alvin Bragg this week's idiot. Idiot. That wraps up this Shut Up, He Thinks He's Witty edition of the Bogacity podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please go to donate.bogacity.tv for several ways to support and discord.bogacity.tv to join the discussion. Subscribe at Patreon or Subscribestar and you can listen early and ad free. Thank you for listening. Until next time, here's a quote from Learned Hand It is still in the lap of the gods whether a society can succeed which is based on civil liberties and human rights. But of one thing at least we may be sure, the alternatives that have so far appeared have been immeasurably worse. The Bogosity Podcast is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution on Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License. Bogosity.